we come now to his word. I want to invite you to join me in 1 Kings chapter 9. Our, our text is verses 1 through 9. That will be our focus, though, as we look to this text, we will see the implications of it in the remainder of the chapter. So there's a sense we'll, we'll cover all of chapter 9 this morning. As we prepare to look there, kids, let me have your attention. So I want you to listen for something today. You're going to hear in this text that the Lord tells Solomon to walk before him. Sounds a little funny. What does it mean to walk before the Lord? That's what I want you to listen for. Listen for how we do that. Okay, so you can talk to your parents about that at lunch. Now, let's let's look to God's Word. This is verses 1 through 9. This is the inerrant and infallible Word of God. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. For if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and laid hold on other gods, and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. This is the word of the Lord. You bow with me in prayer. Father, this is the word that you have for us this day. You are a faithful God and you call us to faithfulness and we pray that you would open our hearts, our minds to, to hear the lesson that you have for us this day, to lean further into our blessed dependence upon Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Looming over this whole passage is a simple but pointed call 
the God who is faithful is calling his servant to faithfulness. There's a lot to unpack in all of that, but at its core, that is the message. It's the message that, that the Lord has for Solomon in this text, and it's the message that the Lord has for us here today. And so the question then is, what does faithfulness look like? Is faithfulness primarily a faithfulness to a set of law codes? Or could it be a faithfulness to a person? One is a matter of action, of perfect obedience. The other is a matter of presence, humble worship. One is the charge that comes from, from a driving taskmaster. The other is an invitation that comes from a loving father. The difference between the two, well, it changes everything. It changes everything in the way we see this text. It changes everything in the way we respond to this text. And so let's unpack this text so that we can understand more here what the Lord is calling us to in terms of faithfulness. We begin to look at this passage, we will see that verses 1 through 3 serve as the Lord's answer to the prayer of Solomon that we have unpacked further in chapter 8. And the first answer that we see in this text is the Lord's very appearance before Solomon. This is the second occasion that the Lord's appeared before Solomon the first was was at least 13 years before this you see it wasn't every day that the Lord made himself known showing himself by his appearance before Solomon the the first such occasion was at Gibeon and there at that occasion the Lord was asking Solomon what shall he give him Solomon asked for wisdom And the Lord provided it in abundance. But here, this time, in this second appearance, the Lord is calling Solomon to faithfulness. But don't miss the fact that in calling Solomon to faithfulness, the Lord is graciously making himself known. He's, He's graciously presenting himself before Solomon first answer to prayer that we see in this text but secondly we see the Lord's answer to Solomon's prayer by virtue of his words verse 3 we see the Lord response I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever my eyes and my heart will be there for all time consecrate is to make holy The Lord is saying that he has made the temple holy. He has consecrated it. It's done past tense. Only technically, he's not speaking in the past tense. He's speaking in the perfect tense. The perfect tense speaks of an action that took place in the past, but it has ongoing, continuing relevance. In other words, the Lord is saying, 
I have consecrated this temple. I have made it holy, and it will remain holy, consecrated to me. And then there's a promise. My eyes, my heart will be there. Or put another way, I will see all, and I will be with. That is what we see in terms of the Lord's answer to, to Solomon's prayer in the, in the first three verses. But you know how oftentimes we ask someone a question and they will answer with another question. And the Lord continues in response to Solomon's prayer with a question that he puts before Solomon. You see in verse 4 there's a bit of a turn in focus. Before the Lord has been focusing on the temple Verse 4, and as for you, or turns his focus there to Solomon, and he puts before him an if-then statement. If you walk before me, then I will establish your throne. No doubt about it. It's a conditional statement. How does that strike you when you hear that there's an if-then statement, a conditional statement that the Lord is putting before Solomon, and you begin to sense that maybe he's doing that for me? Do you hear that if-then and, and your antennas go up? Maybe you cringe a bit at that thought. We hear the word, and we hear these if-then statements through the lens of our own experience. Did you grow up in a performance-based home? Are you living in a performance-based relationship now? Do you feel like you live in a, in a performance-based society? You know, look a certain way, act a certain way, excel in a certain manner, and if you do, You'll get rewarded. Those rewards sometimes come in the form of praise. Sometimes they come in the form of monetary rewards. Sometimes there are other forms of affection. But you see, the corollary is also true. If you don't perform, or perhaps if you stop performing, then those rewards will be removed. Some of us learn those lessons, and we learn them well, and so we learn to perform. Some of us simply turn and run. However we respond, we hear this text, we hear most of Scripture through the lens of our earthly, earthly experience, and so we've got to slow down a bit. You've got to slow down a bit and ask, what is the Lord doing here? So first, as we slow down, we, we see that the Lord is saying to Solomon, walk before me. Now, now, kids, that's what I told you to listen for, all right? Walk before me. But what could that mean? A little odd, don't you think, for the Lord to say, walk before me, as if he's saying, hey, walk out in front of me. The Lord's saying, lead the way. 
before me? That would not fit, would it? Actually, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, gives us some guidance here and actually throughout the rest of this sermon. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 is the first commandment. And there, the Lord says, you shall have no other gods before me. What is he saying, no other gods before me? Is he saying, it's all right to have some other gods as long as they're not before me, as long as they're behind me in the priority list. As long as I get top billing in the pecking order, we're all right. Is that what the Lord's saying there? Before me also means before me, in my presence. The Lord is saying, you shall have no other gods in my presence. We're always, always in the Lord's presence, which tells us that we are to have no other gods, no other idols. Presence is the key in the first commandment, and presence is the key in 1 Kings chapter 9. God is telling Solomon to walk in his presence, to be with him actively. That's the walking part of it. But in his presence before him is walking relationally. Then he gives Solomon a model. Walk like David walked. So now we're starting to get somewhere, aren't we? Y'all, I am so sorry. There is spider that is no more. <laughs> we always pray for the Lord to guide us. Um, <clears throat> Satan shows up in a variety of ways. Uh, where were we? Um, the Lord told Solomon to, to walk like David walked. But if you're not familiar with the way David walked, let me remind you. Because he was a bit of a mess. We have a sense of of David's track record when it comes to law keeping. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He was a thief, a liar, and a coveter. When it comes to sin, David was pretty proficient. And so what's happening here is... Is God forgetting all of that when he tells Solomon to walk like David walked? Is he telling him to walk with integrity of heart and uprightness and forgetting all of that? Well, no. He's not talking about walking with perfect moral obedience, though I will tell you that is required, and yet... We are reminded that our God is a God of grace and He has been from the very beginning because from the very beginning He made a promise to the very first sinners, Adam and Eve, that one day there would come another who would crush the head of the serpent, who would perfectly fulfill the law. From the beginning, our God has been a God of grace. And so when the Lord is telling Solomon to walk like David, he's not telling him to walk in moral obedience and perfection like David. He's talking about 
walking with a faithfulness of the heart. David was a messy, broken sinner. Does that sound familiar? I hope so. Because it sounds a lot like me. And it sounds a lot like you. With all his faults, however, David worshipped the Lord. And we see that time and time again in David's life of returning in repentance and in love. And so what the Lord is talking about in terms of walking like David is made more clear in verse 6 as he speaks of the opposite of walking like David. There he says, but if you turn aside from following me and serve other gods and worship them. The Lord is saying don't turn. Return. That's crucial. Don't turn, return. And returning is a life and a lifestyle of repentance, one that David beautifully modeled with a heart of worship through his humble life of repentance. So here for Solomon, the conditional, if you will, becomes the question, will you? Will you return? Again, I I know some of us heard the if-then and we just stopped right there. We closed the book because, as I've said, we we hear through the lens of our own experience. And so let let me illustrate with a picture, a portrait of two different fathers. The first father demands the child perform. Perform on the ball field. Perform in school, bring home the grades, perform out in public, use your manners, show respect, speak well of me, and if you do, I will be happy with you for a time. But keep it up, because it all rests on that performance. That's the first father. Here's the second father. The second father lovingly initiates and says, My heart is with you, and my heart is for you. Keep your heart with me. Our God is the second father. Our God is the father who stands with open arms, ready to receive the prodigal who returns. And I believe that that is what we're seeing with Solomon, look, <clears throat> there is much that I do not understand and won't pretend to understand about Solomon and his record that we see throughout First Kings. And as I have said in our time in First Kings, praise the Lord that you and I are free from the burden of having to render judgment over him. With that, I've looked at this text, and I've asked myself a question over the course of this week. What's different in this statement, in this conditional statement, between what the Lord is saying to Solomon and what he said to David in the Davidic covenant? The Davidic covenant, as we have said in our time in 1 Kings, is God's promise, his covenant to David that he would always have an offspring who would remain on the throne over the kingdom. This, here, 
in 1 Kings 9, it's explicitly conditional. And it lays out the destruction that we will see take place in the nation of Israel. The Davidic covenant is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In verse 13 through 15 of 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord seems to be speaking to Solomon. Now, ultimately, his words there are fulfilled in Jesus. But there the Lord makes this promise. He, he's talking to David, but he speaks of he, another. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be with him. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Sounds like a faithful father. It sounds like a faithful father to Solomon and to us. But 1 Kings 9 also reminds Solomon, if you turn, there will be consequences. This is not a warning, hey, mess up one time and you're out. Step out of line once and you're a goner. That's not the sense that we get here. No, if you turn, it seems to be speaking of something deeper than a, than a one-time step up, a trip up, a fall over. This is a call to obedience that's centered on a faithful heart of worship. The warning that the Lord gives Solomon is also a warning that he gives us. And it's a warning against the sin. The sin that we see and will see in Solomon's life. The sin that we see in the nation of Israel and we will continue to see in the kings of Israel. The sin is the sin of idolatry. It's the sin of turning one's heart after a lesser God, a no God. What is a warning against that and telling Solomon that if the leader falls, the nation will experience the pain. He tells us in verse 7, the nation will become a proverb and a byword. That the passers-by, they will hiss at the once glorious people. They will hiss at the once glorious nation and temple. That description of the nation becoming a proverb and a byword, it is a word-for-word repeat of the Lord's warning through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 37. There in, in Deuteronomy 28, the Lord is laying out for His people what will be the consequences will be the curses of their covenantal disobedience and he repeats it here in first kings 9 a repeat that sadly we will see played out in the rest of this book you feel the weightiness 
of all of this? These these verses, particularly these closing verses, verses 6 through 9, they they add context and meaning to what is the seeming success of the rest of the chapter. Go home later and read verses 10 through 28, and you will see what appears to be a pretty impressive record of leadership. You will see Solomon and, and a recounting of his wise leadership, but understand and take comfort in this. Effective administrative skills are not the measure of faithfulness to the Lord. If you read verses 10 through 28, you will also see that they recount Solomon's fulfillment of the religious rites. Verse 25, three times a year Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord. So he finished the house. Hear that and take comfort that outward religion, outward religiosity is not the measure of faithfulness that the Lord is calling Solomon to. It's not effective administrative skills. It's not outward religion. It must be something else. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis looks at verses 6 through 9 and compares them to what comes. And he says that verses 6 through 9 stand like a Mount Rushmore peering down over verses 10 through 28. He says this. One may be enjoying a thoroughly successful kingly or financial, or professional, or even pastoral career, and yet end up in utter ruin unless one takes obedience to the first commandment as his very highest calling. I put the first commandment before you earlier. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. First commandment that takes priority and leads to all the rest. God is to have the place of prominence and the place of exclusivity in our hearts. That is the requirement that he puts before Solomon and it is the very definition of faithfulness that he's calling Solomon to. Calling him. And us, to walk in the presence of the Lord with a heart that does not turn. The kingdom of God, there's no place for a heart divided or a heart to turn, or a heart turned. You shall have no other gods before me. But sadly, that will prove to be Solomon's legacy. You need to hear this. Please hear this. We look at, at Solomon, and, and Solomon's got it all together. All right? He's dressed nicely. His kingdom runs smoothly. Solomon is professional. But his heart was divided. David, he was a mess. He was anything but put together but his heart returned time and again to the Lord his God 
One put together, one a mess. One with a heart divided, one who continually returned to the Lord his God. It's an old story, but it has relevance for us. Because through it, I believe the Lord is issuing to us here today a call. What does faithfulness look like for us? Solomon actually told us. In chapter 8, verse 61, as he's praying over the people of Israel, he, he says this to them, Let your heart be wholly true to the Lord our God. I think that's for us. Let your heart be wholly true to the Lord our God. But how do we do this? Is there anyone here who can make it through an extended time of prayer without their mind wandering to the grocery list? Our lives play a constant, incessant game of whack-a-mole. We whack whatever comes up. You know it. I know it. And so how are we to do what the Lord seems to be calling us to do here? How are we to keep our hearts with the Lord? Is there any hope? The best way, perhaps the only way, which I believe is actually the way that Scripture indicates, is to constantly remind ourselves that the Lord our God is the one keeping our hearts. To preach the gospel to myself daily, not thinking that the gospel was my entry point into the Christian life that I needed at the point of conversion, but then after that, I'm then up to my own devices, that then I grow in obedience, doing it my own way. Oftentimes, we would not say that, but that's the way we live. I believed the gospel on that day, and then I move on in my own strength. But that's not the record of Scripture. The record of Scripture is that the gospel is the entry point of the Christian life, and it is the content of the Christian life. How do we keep our hearts holy with the Lord? We embrace the fact that we are not the hero of our own story allows us to look to the one true hero, the one whose grip on us is tighter than our grip on him. That's the record of Scripture. That's the record of John chapter 6 when Jesus says, I have not let them go and I will not let them go. When we cling to that truth, then we can rest in Jesus and clinging to that truth is clinging to to Jesus Himself. This passage is calling us to a life of faithfully walking before the Lord, to persist in Him, to not turn away from Him. And the only way, the only way that messy sinners like us can do that is to know that He is the one who has us. as an outworking of His grace. With that realization, in the small moments of turning that we all have, we can experience joy through a humble lifestyle of repentance. See, the Scripture 
is a both-and scripture. Christians are sinners and saints. We're saints because Christ has declared us righteous in His sight. The both-and of scripture, the both-and of, of clinging to Him, the both-and of having a heart wholly devoted to Him, I believe, is laid out for us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through 13. The Apostle Paul puts these words before us, telling us how. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Sounds like the if, it sounds like the work, but then he goes on to tell us who has us. For it is God who works in you. It is his will. It is his work. It is his good pleasure. To work it out knowing God is working in you. Walk faithfully knowing that you are being carried all the way. This text, it is a warning. Don't miss the warning. Hear the warning. But also know that this text points us to the hope that we all share. The passage we read of the call and the consequences. There are consequences that Israel would experience as the just result of their sinful turn away from the Lord. We too are tempted to turn. We too are tempted to run. And we do. We do more often than any of us would like to acknowledge. But there is one who did come who did not turn. An eventual son of David, one who would come after Solomon, one who would come in fulfillment of the Lord's call, the Lord's prophecy to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, to David, and yes, even to Solomon. It was Jesus. And Jesus kept the commands of verse 6. He walked faithfully, perfectly before his Father. And yet he himself became the proverb. He became the byword among the peoples. The passers-by, those who saw him on the cross, they were astonished at his marred appearance and they hissed at him. And he took it all. He took it all not because he sinned, but because his people did. You see, Solomon, he eventually failed. And because he was their king, his people bore the consequence of his failure. But Jesus is a different kind 
of king. Jesus is an obedient king. Jesus is the king who perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law on behalf of his people. Jesus is the glorious king who became a servant. Jesus is the king who bore the sin of his people. And Jesus is the king who suffered the consequences on their behalf, on our behalf, so that his people might be crowned with glory. So what does faithfulness look like? It looks like faith in the one who loved us. And the one who gave himself for us. Brothers and sisters, what does faithfulness look like? It looks like walking in him. Trusting that he is the one who has us all the way home. Amen. Father, this is, this is your word. And it's your word for your people. It's a word of warning, it's a word of hope. And that hope is not a hope in ourselves. It's a hope in Jesus. And so I pray that you would give us hearts to hear, hearts to cling. That is your sovereign grace and we need it every hour. So would you give it to us? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.